Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Incident report, November 20th, 1978. Nature of incident, suicide. Name, Bush Christopher, age 27. At 8.37 a.m., this officer received a radio run to check on the welfare of a Mr. Bush. On arrival, I found a Christine Bracken, who stated she was the Bush's maid and cleaned every Monday, but this a.m. she could not gain entry to the home as the night latch was locked from inside and the Detroit Free Press papers from Friday were still in the door. She felt something was wrong with Mr. Bush, and she walked across the street to a neighbor The neighbor's husband called Bush's brother, Charles Bush, who in turn called us. Charles Bush arrived at approximately 9 a.m., at which time we tried to gain entry by breaking the glass out of the storm door on the west side of the house off the kitchen, but found the door bolted from the inside, at which time this officer forced the front door open, breaking the chain lock from the wall. On entry, both Charles Bush and myself went upstairs to his brother's bedroom. Finding his bedroom door closed, we opened the door and observed his brother in bed with a 22 caliber rifle by his side, lying on his back, obviously dead. Officers made a check of the home inside and out finding all doors and windows had been locked from the inside except the door from the garage. It was standing open, but the outside overhead doors were closed. Autopsy protocol report, general information, name of deceased, Christopher Bush, date of death, November 20th, 1978, time of death, listed as 9.30 a.m., Date of autopsy, November 20th, 1978. Time of autopsy, 1 p.m. Cause of death, gunshot wound of head. Manner of death, suicide. You're listening to You Know They Know from the files of the Oakland County Child Killer Investigation with J. Ruben Appleman, author of The Kill Jar, a chronicle of 10 years investigating Detroit's most notorious serial killer case published by Simon & Schuster. The Kill Jar was the springboard for the Investigation Discovery TV show Children of the Snow, now on Hulu. You Know They Know is brought to you from the KRBX studios in Boise, Idaho with music from Patrick Benolkin. I'm J. Ruben Appleman. From the time I began researching the Oakland County child killings, a series of abduction murders in the 1970s outside of Detroit, to the time my book The Kill Jar was finished, 10 years had passed. This podcast was partially born in response to readers of The Kill Jar and viewers of Children of the Snow asking for more, and it was also greatly born from the compelling evidence that indicates this case should have been solved years ago, leading me and others to wonder, was it? 
Episodes often begin with a reading from the actual case files in my possession, the decades of investigative narratives and interrogation transcripts, the evidence trails and autopsy reports and polygraph results, and all manner of supplementary docs reporting from the hundreds of city, county, state, and FBI investigators who have touched this allegedly unsolved case. Today, you heard from documents titled Narrative Report and Autopsy Protocol. On the show with me today is Michael Arntfield, a police officer in London, Ontario from 1999 to 2014, but also a PhD recipient whose dissertation focused on police murders. He's the founder of the Western Ontario Cold Case Society, an unsolved crimes think tank run out of Western University, where he teaches from a criminal humanities curriculum. He's been retained by a number of television networks, including AMC, A&E, CBS, and Oxygen as a consultant, producer, writer, and host for his expertise investigating murders of a spectrum. He has written a number of books and articles, and you can find links to his work on his website at michaelarnfield.com. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Glad to be on, and uh, good to reconnect with you. Yeah, we met personally uh, while while I was working on Children of the Snow for the Investigation Discovery Network, um, and you were contacted by by the show's producers uh, for that because of an earlier report you authored on the Oakland County child killings. Um, and yeah, it was cool to it was cool to see you in person. But but I knew of you uh, a number of years uh, before we actually met because of that report. Um, can we start by you recapping? Uh, how you came to the case and and what your original work found, how you ended up authoring that report? Right. So um, in 2011, I started the Cold Case Society at Western University. That's where I'm a tenured associate professor. At the time, I was both a professor and still a cop, actually. Uh, So I created this group, basically, for students who were studying criminal justice, wanted to get into law enforcement or go to law school, uh, and have them combine and leverage their interests in true crime, but also in many cases. I mean, these are all-star students that were hand-picked. Uh, and sort of uh, commiserate and compare notes with other experts and other professors and to do some heavy lifting on cases that hadn't got a lot of attention and to see basically where we could take it through the lens of new technology and I think revivified public interest. So... Uh, we sort of grappled with what should be the first inaugural case that we take on. And around that same time, uh, Barry King, Timothy King's father, uh, reached out, subsequent to some publicity that this think tank got uh, across North America, and contacted my assistant and had this cache of documents that, I mean, to have that many primary source materials, as you know, when looking at a cold case is very rare, and we thought, uh, number one, London is pretty close to Detroit. It's about 90 minutes. Um, I, I grew up going to Detroit frequently for Red Wings games, Tigers games. Uh, my grandfather was born and raised in Detroit before they moved to Canada. So I had a personal connection. I had a connection, obviously, to the grisly uh, and horrific nature of the murders. And then, uh, I mean, the, the documents were compelling and allowed us through subsequent reinvestigation, much like you, to render a report uh, written largely by a forensic uh, biologist and I about uh, some shortcomings with the evidence and some things that didn't add up and ideally provide um, a footing for the district attorney to maybe open up a new lane of inquiry. And as you sort of hinted at in your book and as we see in Children of the Snow, 
there really wasn't an appetite for that. But if nothing else, I hope that it set the historic record straight and at least served as a springboard for your work. Yeah, it definitely informed my work. Or, or you know, I can tell you it 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 it, 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 it at the very least it paralleled uh, thoughts of mine at the time, which gave me um, reason to keep going. Uh, you know, I, I was not a, a seasoned investigator at the time. You know, I don't have the criminal justice background you have. Um, I came to this case as as you probably remember from just personal reasons, and so this like you you mentioned this cache of documents that the King family had. Um, thousands of pages in addition to the thousands I had drummed up on my own. Um, th- this, these were the actual case documents, which, which was awesome. And, and in that, you know, those bankers boxes, metaphorically anyway, there, there were, um, among those documents was, was your report, um, June of 2012. Um, it, it was, it was written or, uh, published or sent. I don't know what that date is referring to, but I guess that's when you were finished with it. And, and, when I stumbled onto that, I had already had a lot of thoughts, some of which were like, oh, man, I'm going to spend a couple of years reading all this stuff, which I did. And I didn't have many deep, deep thoughts yet because I was just getting a sense of the case. And then and then along the way, I, I, I started to think, like you said, things don't add up. And so when I, you know, seeing your report um, uh, helped me to believe in in what I what I was suspecting on my own, you know, Um and you and you mentioned many things. Do you remember the things that don't add up, like off the off, like just in a sweeping sense? Besides the fact that there are like do, you know a dozen maybe, but do you have any, you know, in a broad sense, what kind of things stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, so um, and we know this better now, but I, eyewitness descriptions are rife with issues, uh, and that's of suspects. Eyewitness description of of, of cars. Uh, are the death knell in many cases of certain investigations. And I was perplexed by the fact that they went all in on the blue gremlin uh, in spite of the being very plausible explanations for either a misidentification or it's being uh, like still parked in the lot but unrelated at the King abduction. Um, I mean, and since then, I mean, unfortunately, those mistakes keep getting made. I mean, you think to the, uh, the D.C. sniper case, and they went all in on the white van. And in the meantime, they're driving a you know a navy blue Caprice, and more people are getting killed. So that stood out: uh, uncorroborated alibis and affiliations of known pedophiles. Um, I mean, the, the links to to North Fox Island, um, and some there's certainly some avenues there in terms of, uh, and this has been seen in some other serial cases in the U.S. In terms of. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but uh, the drug world and undercover child pornography are the two hubs to which the spokes of a thousand other crimes connect. And if you can get your hooks into those people, you'd be amazed what they know. And that was not substantively explored, I think, in part just due to, at the time, no one really wanted to acknowledge that stuff existed. And then, obviously, the the coup de grace for the case, at least in terms of credibility for, for those who say it's still active and ongoing, uh, is the Bush quote unquote suicide of November '78? Yeah, that's right. So let's talk about that. That's what I read from. Uh, I read from a little bit of the narrative report, um, and and basically what 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 we have is we have um, 
And uh, let me back up for a second. The Blue Gremlin we're going to talk about extensively on the show, so I'm glad you brought that up. We'll talk about that in, in future episodes. And, and also um, uh, what you mentioned about Fox Island, we haven't talked about yet on the show, but we're going to pretty soon, about four or five episodes from now and all that. So I'm glad you, you brought that up as kind of a primer, and maybe we can hit at that toward, toward the end, and maybe, maybe, maybe I'll get you back on the show in a week or two. Sure. But, but, uh, but in the meantime, f- what we basically know is that Christopher Bush— who at the time of his alleged suicide was um, had had recently been in in a, a, a year and a half or so, two years or so long um, a series of court uh, appearances for criminal sexual conduct charges that he was fighting. Um, they were unrelated to the child killings, but uh, allegedly, excuse me, unrelated to the child killings. But um, but uh, at the time of his um court proceedings for for uh the molestation the the basically the, the rape of of children um these these other kids known as the Oakland uh victims of the Oakland County child killer had had been um disappearing and 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 held in captivity and murdered and and um at the time of Bush's alleged suicide his his partner in crime in the criminal sexual conduct charges had been already uh incarcerated um for those charges um, Bush was was able to successfully fight those charges with with um, the help of an expensive attorney hired by his wealthy father, and uh, Bush Bush received probation and a thousand dollar fine for the molestation of of uh, a number of a number of children as well as a, uh, for being in possession of child pornography and all kinds of things. And and at the time of his arrest for those criminal sexual conduct charges. Uh, Bush had been found with a suitcase full of child pornography in the terms of in in in, in the way of um, still photos and and um, tape and um, or film and um, Chris, Gregory Green, who I've mentioned already on the show, um, had dimed on Christopher Bush as the killer of Mark Stebbins. Christopher Bush had allegedly passed a polygraph, which we we go back and we look at the polygraph results and. Uh, uh, independent polygraphers have said no; those are failed results. So somebody had said he passed, even though he had failed. Um, and then, uh, you know, listeners of the show have a, a long history about what's been going on uh, in 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 the time between um, uh, the first killing and 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 now Christopher Bush committing suicide allegedly on November twentieth of seventy eight, um, right before the task force. Uh, dedicated to solving these crimes decides we don't need to do this anymore and they pull out. Um, but all of that said, Christopher Bush, uh, uh, doesn't answer his door when the maid comes or the door is locked and the, and then he doesn't answer the door when she knocks presumably to get in. And the maid goes across the street and says, something's weird. I can't get into the house. Um, the, the, the neighbor calls Charles Bush, Christopher Bush's brother and says, something's weird. And Charles Bush, instead of just coming home, calls the police, which is very strange. You know, if somebody comes to your house and and tries to get in and they can't and they call your sister and they say, hey, I, I can't get into the house. Your sister's not going to call the police. Um, she's going to come and try to get you into the house or something. Either, anyway, the police show up. Christopher Bush is 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 found upstairs um, in his bedroom shot through the head with a rifle. It was, um, I forget the make offhand, but it was a, a purchase at Kmart is where you got this rifle. It was a semi-automatic 22, 
And um, what do you remember about the scene? Do you do you have recall of that? I have clear recall of the scene. Um, so first of all, things are suspicious before entries even made, and that's not a line of inquiry that was ever pursued because it was summarily dismissed as a suicide and um, beyond some cursory sort of loose ends being tied up, police don't uh, vigorously investigate suicides uh, then or now, and unless there's suspicious indicators, and there are here uh, by the bowlful, but they're not investigated. What I remember of the scene itself is, I mean, for lack of a better word, a diorama uh, and an opus to the Oakland County child killing and murders, in that you have uh, Christopher Bush in bed, uh, the gun at a sort of oblique angle that is not consistent, I can tell you from experience, with someone who self-inflicts uh, a fatal wound. Um, the, the room is squalid, it's a mess, there's stuff all over the place, and that stuff includes uh, bindings that are piled in a corner in the closet consistent with the bindings thought to have been used in uh, some of the murders uh, to um, keep the children in captivity. Uh, there is um, some interpretive items uh, that include a manual for a Volkswagen, uh, similar make, uh, or similar model and body style and color as the blue gremlin, that's neither here nor there, but as a as father being a GM executive, that seems odd to just be in the room. And then I think the telltale indicator is two things. Number one, a bullet hole through the wall uh, of that from that same weapon, and nearby a sketch that is uh, eerily similar to uh, Mark Stebbins, right down to what he was wearing when he was abducted and um, I mean, it, it depicts a chilling vignette of it seems to be the boy screaming in pain or in, or in terror. Um, and a sketch we can presume was not made by Bush, who had no artistic talent of which anyone is aware, but would seem to have been at the very least commissioned by somebody and depicts uh, Stebbins in a state that uh, beyond the police and his family who saw him off that day, only the killer would know about yeah, the, the, the drawing of Stebbins depicts him, uh, what he's wearing, but also screaming out in uh, some sort of agony or pain or whatever you'd want to call it. Um, there, are two, there are actually two drawings that, are, that, that we have that can compare, uh, or I'm sorry, there's a drawing in the files that compares to the drawing of Stebbins, and it's basically a, a perfect match for Mark Stebbins. And, um, right. and this is found tacked to his wall. In um, plain view. Yeah, in plain view. And you mentioned bindings. Um, the photos I have of the of the suicide scene, which I'm sure you've seen uh, those photos, uh, there it looks like there are several different there there are ropes for starters, and it looks like there are several different ones of them. They're kind of messed up, you know, kind of lying in a messy pile. Is that your yeah? Rec- yeah. That's what I that's what I recall. Yeah, and do you know where those ropes are now? I do not. That's something we could never ascertain, along with a lot of the evidence. So if we can keep talking about the scene, so that's your, um, that's your inner scene. That's, that's the room where the death occurred. But then the outer scene, which is the rest of the house, uh, I mean, was relatively nondescript, with the exception of there's an empty, I think it's a 1.7 liter, 1.75 liter 
doing my metric imperial conversion here, but essentially a large bottle of, of liquor empty on the counter, uh, which also is never accounted for, never printed, never kept for DNA, uh, I mean, which could confirm whether someone else was there present drinking from that bottle or handling that bottle. Um, and that would square with the fact that, I mean, his blood alcohol concentration was through the roof. I mean, consistent with essentially that uh, the whole bottle having been consumed in one sitting, bearing in mind the rate of elimination for, uh, you know, an adult male, certainly someone of his size. So, I mean, I, I don't remember the exact well, number. They actually, say was, they actually have it as 0.41 on the lab yeah. findings, uh, which is outrageous. But, but there is some... Some some notation from somebody somewhere that this could have also been increased somehow by the decomposition rate or something. I don't know how this works, but but you... no, that's that's not. I I know of no case. I mean, that's basic analytic chemistry and uh, forensic pathology. The thought is that um, if anything, there may be a slight decrease in blood alcohol post mortem as part of the, the sort of decaying process, but that essentially the, the, the blood stops moving, the body stops metabolizing food and anything, any, any alcohol, anything in the bloodstream. So that's a reasonably accurate snapshot of what it was at the moment of death. Wow. And it's certainly not going to be dramatically uh, inflated. Uh, in fact, I know of no case where there's been a, an erroneous reading like that. And we put our faith in that in forensic toxicology like that. I mean, uh, because if you can think of, an, of, a, of a drunk driving case causing death, I mean, so post-mortem blood samples taken from, say, a, an impaired driver who's killed, I mean, that's going to have profound implications in terms of settling lawsuits, in terms of assigning faults, in terms of uh, you know, subsequent um, inquests or investigations. So, I mean, if, if we put our, our faith in it in those cases... Uh, we have to, even by the standards of 1978, forensic toxicology in in this case. Wow. So the 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 um, one note on the on the the what you call the binding the ro- bindings the ropes. I want to talk about. Um, so if Christopher Bush had a 0.41 percent uh, blood alcohol, um, which is would be very difficult to to get to, um, but. Uh, we have uh, the lab report um, related to Christopher Bush, uh, what they're calling suicide. Uh, lab report received um, on twelve twelve seventy eight at the Michigan State Police. So um, you know, a, a couple of weeks later, um, re- uh, there is uh, <laughs> there's a note that says as evidence received, and then it says removed from evidence locker. Uh, one fifty p.m. box containing drawing of a child in a parka and numerous ropes and cordage. Results of examination: no question, ropes or cordage were recovered from the victims of the four homicides under investigation by the Oakland County Task Force. Therefore, no comparisons could be made to the ropes allegedly used to bind the victims. The ropes, uh, found at the Christopher Bush suicide scene will be retained in the event future comparison with other possible uses become necessary. Then in uh, early 2000s, a note from, I believe this is from uh, Detective uh, Corey Williams, who's looking into the Bush suicide at the behest of the King family, uh, has a, a narrative note that says, it appears the detectives made no connection 
to the child killings case at that time, meaning the connection to the Bush suicide, um, Bloomfield Township Police uh, are no longer in possession of the ropes, the shotgun shell. There was a shell found at the scene as well as the bullet casings, but uh, from the rifle or the or the original drawing from Bush's bedroom. This suicide case had been closed and the evidence found in Bush's room has since been destroyed. <laughs> right, like the, the flood at the FBI that uh, ruined the uh, the record of who all the clients were for the child pornography ring in that area. That's and right. Sheldon's clients. That's so right. So we have recurring, insecure, climate-controlled cons- police uh, evidentiary facilities, um, the suspicious disappearance or destruction of uh, two separate facilities, uh, you know, of, of key exhibits. And... Um, I mean, and I'm not one to ever put on a conspiracy hat, but, um, and I don't think this is a conspiracy per se, uh, but you would be amazed, especially by the standards of 1978, how easily someone even of just middle rank could have unbridled, unquestioned access to things, and you wouldn't ask questions if you were, you know, a a clerical worker or a relatively junior officer. Uh, I mean, it just takes... Doesn't think a conspiracy of two is still a conspiracy. So someone acting in the interest or as an emissary for someone on the outside, it doesn't need to be the permanent one. Um, but when you factor someone acting with malfeasance and malice and in bad faith with a swath of people who are generally indifferent or incompetent, then you, you know, you get some cataclysmic. Uh, damage to a case. And uh, the, the one example I'm going to cite, and this stood out and obviously was in our report back in 2012, as um, many of these exhibits go missing. The key exhibit, the firearm, uh, is returned on request to H. Lee Bush, Christopher Bush's father, on request, complete with an IOU written. If the, you know, if the police ever need it back, he'll return it. Well, in the meantime, you've returned the one key item um, to, uh, obviously, a family member, a stakeholder. And number two, it doesn't matter if an IOU is written as puerile as that is in its own right. Uh, I mean, even by 1978, upon turning that over, chain of, of custody, chain of continuity on that item is lost, such that even if a murder investigation was open and they wanted that back, Regardless of what happened down the road, the rifle would be inadmissible. So by taking that one step alone, the rug is pulled out from beneath any potential future prosecution. Yeah, and just just uh, for listeners, um, just so there's clarity, the he's talking. You're talking about the the rifle that was uh, used to allegedly for by Christopher Bush to allegedly kill himself with, which which. which um, uh, would be considered in a regular crime scene uh, uh, the the very first thing that, that I'm assuming that poli- that police officers will, would want to maintain custody of um, the the weapon Correct. the weapon that caused the the death um, and they gave it back to the uh, Christopher Bush's father H Lee who was a wealthy executive at the time who it seems like just said hey can I get that back and they said sure and um, or that's the way it looks on, uh, based on the document trail. He, he wrote them an IOU saying he'd give it back to them at some, uh, some, some unspecified time or something like that. Um, but it also begs the question, if we're going to talk about Bush family conduct, uh, your, your son has killed himself uh, uh, ostensibly in your home. 
Why do you want that back? What do you want that back for? You want something that uh, you know was in his hand in theory to, to do this, and now you're you're, you're you're burying your child, and you want that back for what? Yeah, it's an incredible. Put, put, you put yourself in someone's mind uh, who uh, a grieving father. If this were to have happened as as it appears, or as the police are saying it happened, you want that back for what? As a heirloom, as uh, or or for perhaps for for some other more tactical purpose. You know, that's a great great question, it, it, and I never asked that question of. of of the case. That's a really great question, especially when you think that this, this was not an expensive weapon. It wasn't... Um, no, precisely. This guy, I mean, by modern standards, is a millionaire several times over. And this is, I mean, essentially uh, a, a teenager's first gun. Uh, you know, the equivalent of, of maybe $100, $200 now. The equivalent of, I mean, uh, essentially a pistol. This is not a, a high-end high-end assault weapon. And even if it was, uh, it doesn't seem to be a little money. He wanted that back as quickly as possible for some other reason and, and I can't think much like his brother his first instinct is hey I better get the cops over there because I, they're going to find something I mean that's something only H. Lee or the rest of the family would have known and took to their graves yeah what do you remember about Christopher Bush's uh, uh, manner of what, what, what do you what do police call it when they walk in and they see the, the, the body what you know the way he was laid out or whatever you want to call it yeah you could just call it position or deposition of the body um as much of the copy i had um was redacted in that it didn't show the precise position of the body what i do remember is the gun the weapon was out of position such that um i mean had death been instantaneous as you would expect through a with a, a through or a gunshot to the head uh, I mean, that's a small caliber weapon, mind you, but uh, you're not around maneuvering after for the most part. Uh, the gun is, is left sort of towards his feet uh, at a perpendicular rather than parallel to the body. So often the weapon will drop parallel because you're holding it uh, and then your arms sort of drop down and the gun drops down at the same angle at which it had been aiming at you. In this case, I mean, it, it looks essentially chucked. To his feet, it's now laying at a horizontal angle, whereas you would expect a vertical angle. Um, and the theory was that, again, with about 45 cocktails still in his blood, uh, he must have had the dexterity as a 320, 350-pound-plus obese man of no particular agility or athleticism to have put himself into a position where he maybe propped it up uh, with his knees or with a, a pillow. And uh, I mean, there was all sorts of Theor- like in, you want to talk about theoretical physics and speculation, there's all sorts of uh, ideas about how this might be possible. And in all cases, the objective was to um, confirm um, a existing theory of, of suicide, whether or not that was actually supported by the evidence. They found a number of ways where, again, an acrobat could have done this, so therefore it must have been that, versus exploring another theory uh, that he didn't pull the trigger and that this was badly staged. And this is supported by a couple things. Uh, number one is the angle and position of the weapon. Number two is the position of the body. And I think most notably, the fact that he had no gunshot residue or GSR on his hands. Now, if he had died a couple of days earlier, and that's another error in the, in the autopsy, they don't actually make an effort to determine a precise or a window of death. They, they use time of death as when he's found. And we know he'd been there for at least a couple of days. Um, 
GSR can dissipate or even disappear throughout the course of the day if you're working with your hands, you're washing your hands, you're just driving around. I mean, regular movements can eventually have it uh, wear off. But if you're idle in a bed, dead for a couple of days, it should still be there and be there in significant quantity. And there was zero. So uh, again, we have something that is that defies the science of the time and even more today. Um, but no one was really prepared to look any further into that. And so no gunshot residue and, and, um, and I have the, you know, the report from that. It shows they've, they've swabbed each finger of each hand or whatever, and um, nothing shows up. Um, no blood splatter? Right. Uh, which, I mean, could have a, a couple of explanations. Um, you would expect some blood, though. Uh, and so when we say blood splatter, I think a lot of people automatically think about um blood pattern analysis or BPA or blood spatter analysis or BSA. And we're not even talking that specific. We're talking about a general absence of, of blood at all. I mean, there's some matting on his pillow after they roll him over. Really more consistent with a, someone whose nose bleeds in the night. And in fact, I would even say less than that. So this can happen because uh, when you shoot into the skull, um, there's not often a ton of blood. Is that the case? With the 22, this is the de- this is the so it, it will depend on on a few things, uh, trajectory and what have you. But without getting too technical, I mean the the danger of a smaller caliber in this case, what we'll call a semi wad cutter round uh, or just a basic rifle round. I'm not sure exactly which type of jacketing or, or tip it had. But smaller caliber weapons, the damage is that the bullet goes in there and just rattles around and does maximum damage versus, um, you know, other certain calibers and certain types of bullets that will that will go right through and have that exit wound, which um, is catastrophic on the way out and causes massive blood loss, but also uh, doesn't leave a projectile in the body. So that's why, I mean, it's subjective. It comes down to a number of circumstances, how much blood you're going to be talking about. But again, having seen hundreds of scenes in person and, and, and through documentary production and photographs, I've not, I mean, had he been shot at the scene, there would have been enough, uh, as it appeared, as it was staged to appear, there would have been uh, far more blood present than, than what was there. And again, we're talking about like a tablespoon matted on, onto the pillow. So let's recap for a second. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of this stuff points to um, inaccuracies. Well, let's just let's just recap. We have no we have uh, n- we have a a prime suspect in the Oakland County child killings. We know this uh, for a fact based on previous police reports. Uh, police reports prior to his alleged suicide, he was a prime suspect. Now, whether or not he was written off. Uh, is debatable. Okay, let's just presume he's written off. You find a, a recent prime suspect in the state's largest uh, case, uh, in, in fact, in the U.S.'s largest case financially in terms of money allocated toward uh, the resources to find the killer, uh, the alleged Oakland County child killer singular. Um, th- this was the largest uh, financially backed murder investigation in U.S. history to, to that time. And of course, money, you know, more people had more money at then to put toward it but whatever it, it was the largest u.s murder case at that time and 
you have a prime suspect who had failed a polygraph, who's who who had uh, uh, was already uh, arrested and charged for multiple counts of criminal sexual conduct. You had his partner in crime, Gregory Green, uh, had ar- had already served time in California for 50 counts of criminal sexual conduct. I mean, we call it CSC, but it's rape. And so he had he had raped children. He had come to Michigan and he had teamed up with Greg uh, with Christopher Bush. And you have these two guys that are being looked at as 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 uh, for the OCCK. K uh, murders and one of those guys shortly after the murders kind of stopped you know stopped um, one of those guys ends up dead okay it looks like a suicide okay um, but then you say okay there's no gunshot residue even if let's say even if it was a suicide let's say it's a suicide let's say it's just everything points to a suicide he's a prime suspect in the in the in the country's largest uh, uh, murder case um, you're gonna do more than just say suicide and close the book um, but let's let's look at the facts uh, no gunshot residue found okay that could happen maybe he sits there for a few days maybe the maybe the testing was wrong maybe they weren't good at what they were doing or something they they didn't test right or whatever okay no gunshot residue it's plausible that 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 um, that could happen even in a suicide Um no blood spatter or whatever whatever people want to call it or not a lot of blood. Okay, it's possible that could happen. Um, there's a photo of Mark Stebbins on his wall. Okay, it's possible he had a somebody put that you know or, or that he had that that it existed or whatever. Oh, ligatures. Okay, well, you know it's possible they could be taken into custody and later destroyed. Oh, the weapon. Okay, it's given back to the father who's rich. Oh. Uh, and the shit just goes on and on and on. It individually, one of these things is possible, or maybe two of these things is possible. But when you have nine or ten fucking things pointing to the same shit. It's insane to think that this was just your average everyday suicide, and that and that within hours of of the body being found, time of death nine thirty a.m. As you said, they used the time of arrival as the time of death, um, and manner of death listed at by one p.m. Uh, so that's three and a half hours later, three and a half hours later, they, they list the manner of death suicide. And this report is written by Robert Sillery, um, who was the, uh, Robert Sillery MD, who was the medical examiner at the time. And then, and then, um, you know, we, we look, we look at, uh, uh, what happens later with Dr. Sillery, Dr. Sillery, uh, his license to practice medicine was suspended in 1982 and permanently revoked in 1993 in the state of Michigan. Charges were filed a- against him after um, uh, uh, performing an autopsy, uh, pa- a paid autopsy, I think it was, um, by the, the attorney general or something. I, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Also, he was looked at for Medicaid fraud. Um, and he was also, um, there, are, there are notes on this, this um general overview of what happened to Robert Sillery that, that indicate he, he was, uh, taking money for, um, basically throwing medical examinations or altering them. So, so, I mean, so yeah, what you have is, and I've said this before, if someone is dirty, regardless of what they do, they don't just do it once. So it's very interesting that both the ME, so there's basically two, Two demarcation points, two signposts in this investigation where it, they had a chance to get it right, and uh, they didn't, and they didn't because of the direct obstruction and interference of two people. So number one is on uh, the polygraph, 
we now know that that's not just poor, uh, you know, the instrument wasn't malfunctioning, it wasn't poor interpretation, it was a straight-out fail, and the people who that polygraphist were reporting to didn't know how to read the charts, so he pulled off one on them. And we know his subsequent tests uh, are also subject to, to, I mean, essentially he's disgraced. Number two, uh, yeah, the ME also throws uh, the autopsy, and sure enough, that is part of a broader pattern that eventually causes him to lose his license. Uh, both of these things, in retrospect, would warrant their own investigations. And again, I'll come back to uh, if people are prepared to be dirty, there's typically um, two motivations. Self-interest uh, in an intrinsic sense, meaning you are embarrassed for something, someone has something on you, or uh, there's a secret you want to keep, or in an extrinsic sense, meaning uh, some external factor, usually money. So basically, fear or greed are the two, I guess, biggest motivators for someone to, to take such steps, which leads us to ask, uh, how many other people were aware of or involved in what was going on in Oakland County and beyond up to Fox Island in the years prefacing and at the same time as these murders. Uh, that, to me, keeping each other's secrets or people prepared to um, violate their oaths in order to keep a secret seems more plausible than multiple separate people who otherwise have no incentive to lie being just easily paid off, as much money as, as the Bush family had. So if you follow me, it's just interesting that that list, that client list disappears. Uh, You're talking about the client, the client list from Fox Island. Yeah, yeah, which then connects to a distribution network of child porn that will include these four victims. And the real chilling thing is there are still stills or even eight millimeters of these kids out there floating around. I mean, this whole thing was a progenitor to the dark web, and it was being run right out of uh, those children's backyard in, in Oakland County and down through the Cass Corridor in Detroit. And, uh, I mean, this was really ground zero for not only this murder, but I think murders across the U.S., and that there are common distribution points, and uh, I mean, people involved at the center of all of, of a number of different investigations that involve the murder of children, and it all links back, all roads lead back to what was going on there. So, who else is involved? Who else partook? Who else um, would have been incentivized to make sure that no one looked too closely at what happened uh, to Bush? And, and, and that suicide, because there's just there's just no other explanation. And I, I don't know how much you listeners know already, but it's just interesting that Christopher Bush is not the only Bush thought to or who's been named by credible informers as being involved in what was going on there. Well, we have not gotten to that yet. So that's a whole Pandora's box of stuff we should be talking about. And, and, and we we will, too, uh, soon. Um but what you say about multiple people, you know, I've been saying this from the beginning as well. And, and now we have um, we have also DNA that points to multiple people. And I want to talk about I'm going to I'll, I'll reiterate what we know about that. But then I want to ask you about t- your research on team killings and such. But we have we have um, we know that DNA found on Christine Mihalik, um, um victim number three, is a match to. Um, Vince Gunnels, who was who was uh, a victim of Christopher Bush, um, he was a teenager at the time. Um, but we have basically a one degree of separation from that DNA to Christopher Bush. We know that Vince Gunnels, a Bush victim, uh, had DNA 
found on, on Christine Mihalik. We also know that um, DNA taken from the vehicle, a vehicle owned by uh, another pedophile, Art Sloan, um, although it's not Art Sloan's DNA, a, D, D, a DNA match to, to uh, both of the boys was found in, or vice versa or whatever. There was a match between DNA found on both of the boys and, and a match to DNA taken from uh, the vehicle of Sloan. And so at the very least, um, we have one pedophile, Art Sloan, who maybe didn't touch, you know, didn't leave any DNA on these kids, but someone in, someone in riding around in a car he owned um, was uh, in contact with, with both of the boys. And then we have uh, Vince Gunnels. And so in that, in, in the DNA found in, in, in possession of Sloan's property and, and the DNA found uh, Vince, Vince Gunnels' DNA, those aren't a match is what I'm saying. So we know at the very least we have two sources of DNA um, and we have, we also have multiple other reasons to believe that there are multiple perpetrators. But so we know for sure that this was not um, one person uh, swiped these kids off the street, held them in captivity with no other witnesses to anything that happened, um, uh, and then murdered them and dumped them with no other witnesses to anything. We, we know that's not the case um, uh, at the very least. But there's so much more than that. And we're, we, we got into a little bit of it previously. We're going to get in, I'm going to get into it, you know, for months and months here. But but you've done uh my memory is that you've done quite a bit of research on team killings um what do you think about and and you talked just now about the the pornography what i've been calling the pornography syndicate it's just a way of saying the 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 web of porn, porn, pornography child pornographers and consumers of child pornography at the time but what do you feel like what does your gut tell you about multiple people involved in this case well there's no question supported by the dna it's supported just by, again, what we know about teen killers, about what we know about prolonged captivity um, and, and, and about um, homicidal pedophiles generally. I mean, I, I've, talk, I've compared this case frequently, and I don't want to digress too much, but to the case of Dean Coral, the Houston Candyman, where uh, I mean, he begins as a lone offender. He then uses a victim, grooms him as an accessory, uses the accessory to lure other victims to his car, or just based on his, that accessory's network of uh, you know kids who are on the street and, and vulnerable. Uh, then he sort of acquires a third wheel, uh, and it just keep, he keeps building this, this little syndicate of of murder and torture of of, of children and. Um, in this case, we know uh, for a variety of reasons, and this is such a complicated case to unpack, but basically uh, you've got four prime suspects. You've got Bush, you've got Green, you've got uh, Lamborghini, and you've got Sloan. You've also got, uh, and then you could say perhaps Gunnels. We know Gunnels was a victim, uh, which sort of conjures the, the Dean Coral case. Uh, but we know uh, this, this other DNA set is not or sample is not him. So you have a fifth man or a sixth man, if you want to include Gunnels in that group, who remains unidentified. And it's the identity of that person that is the key to unlocking this case. And it's the identity of that person that I think has maintained this this uh, cone of silence around this case. Uh, it's that person or their legacy that is continuing to, to steer this investigation. And it's that person or their legacy uh, that Lamborghini is afraid of, which is why he just took the deal to go away and has, has not said anything further about this other than that God's forgiven him. 
And uh, when you think about who that could be, I mean, it's the the list of of people locally of influence, uh, especially when you see the steps gone to to suppress evidence or just lose it or give it away, uh, is I mean, it, sky's the limit on who that could be. And that, to me, is is the one enduring major mystery of this investigation because I otherwise consider it it solved. It won't be. I mean, they're not going to be filing the paperwork with the Justice Department saying this is now a cleared case. It will probably always be uncleared or unsolved, as we uh, uncleared is the uh, the official term. But I think we can set the historic record straight and say there is a resolution. We can state with reasonable certainty, in fact, on a balance of probabilities, which is the standard of proof in the civil court, if a wrongful death suit were to be filed, uh, maybe not beyond a reasonable doubt, but on a balance of probabilities, we can say that those five, as well as this sixth man, were involved. And that squares with, again, my research on teen killers, which not just mine, but my colleagues, uh, that it has been slowly increasing in frequency since the 70s. The thought is just accessibility to highways, uh, people traveling together in cars, acting opportunistically. Um, and I mean, and now accounts for over half of all serial murder cases. There is uh, in the two or more victims of a serial killer, there is at least one other person involved as an accessory or as a conspirator in half of the cases. And they can be broken down by uh, family and non-family, and then in terms of the specific relationship. So we see, for instance, uh, husband-wife or, or heterosexual intimate partners are the most common family, uh, followed, believe it or not, by father and son as the second most common, going back about 100 years, and again, specifically since the 1970s. So that raises uh, the specter of an interesting prospect in this case, for sure. Well, especially when you add in the um, statements made by some of these uh, perps under under interrogation, stating that, um, I think it was Lawson who may have stated, talked about it, yep. as well as Lamborghini, maybe, um, I'm probably thinking specifically of Lawson when saying that that um, there were these other people who used to procure uh, young boys for H. Lee, uh, Bush's yep. father. Yeah, and by this point, Lawson's going away for life on a on a murder of a cab driver. That that's an, that, that case is I mean initially unrelated, but Corey Williams gets some talking on this. I mean that that was what broke this case wide open. So he's got no advantage to make that up. He's already looking at a life stent. He's, he's done on the other case. Yeah. There's no leverage on that case. So, I mean, what, what's the incentive to lie? And he'd already been proven credible in other tips. So, I mean, this that adds a very disturbing prospect. But believe it or not, when you look at the data, second most common uh, family pairing is father-son. You know... Um... One thing we have to ask, if, if, if we're looking at Christopher Bush as possibly a not, a not a suicide, or I say possibly to be generous, it's not a suicide. I've never called it a suicide, but, but let's, say, let's say possibly not. We have to say then, okay, it's a murder, and if, it, and if, and if that murder is tied to this case, uh, which would be obvious uh, because of all the evidence he's surrounded by and such, um, pointing, pointing to, to that, um, we have to ask who, who would have done that, that murder. And, and, um, there are a couple of theories. Uh, one, one is that, um, we, we can talk about maybe, uh, cops took him out because they knew, they knew he'd never see justice and this was the way of getting justice or, or, um, 
And, and, in, and in the movie version of that, the audience members would, would love that. Um, that's not something we would generally think is bad. Like, okay, this guy's doing, doing kids and, and um, he's never going to see justice and, and a renegade uh, cop or two decide, fuck him, and they take him out. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then the OCCK task force pulls up shop and says, oh, we're done here. And, and there was reason to believe that police would have suspected that he was the doer because, because um, of, all, of all the behind-the-scenes stuff with his polygraph, with his attorney. There's lots of stuff I'll cover in future episodes. Um, but the, uh, another option— a cop, is, a cop wouldn't have been that sloppy. That's the problem. So you, then we're on to another option. Okay. The other another option would be uh, family family um, and and the connection with the the, the rumored connection that H Lee might have to sort of that pedophile world and such and um, or you know the family was wealthy and esteemed and to prevent the embarrassment of all of this coming out um, payoffs and quashing of evidence or destroying of evidence and and all that stuff which which becomes complicated you know there's a lot there that would be complicated and to sort of pull off and but then the third the third option uh, or and there's probably more than this but a third option is what what seems very likely as well and and that jack calflash one one of the original task force thinks is the situation is that bush was what calflash called um in quotes the weak sister to to the to the organization of the, the group of people who were uh, collaborating to abduct, uh, molest, or fo- otherwise photograph or whatever, and and then possibly murder. I mean, I say I say group possibly because it looks to me like uh, the that the murders could be separate from the the abduction, etc. Like the, the, that, we could be looking for one murderer, one person who who killed each of these kids because that's the person who had the stomach for it or something. But but that doesn't mean that other people weren't involved in any any number of uh, steps along the way. But but that said, Calflash thinks Bush was probably the weak sister and, and one of those people offed him. Um, what are, what are your thoughts about all this? I like Calflash's theory. I think uh, I mean I don't think there's any question that. Uh, you know, under different circumstances, he'd be prepared to talk. He was a weak link, and both—I mean, options or scenarios two and three—both incorporate his being the weak link, the uh, you know disposable one. Uh, and I mean, whether it's family or whether it's other members of the syndicate, whether it's the sixth man, and that sixth man is, is not part of the family. Um, either way, I mean, he was—he was killed to assure his silence and to uh, incentivize the already overwrought task force that hadn't really seen a lot of uh, success to, to shut down. And um, so, I mean, the, in, at, at face value, it sort of seemed a happy ending for all until you start pulling on the threads and you realize the sixth man got away with it, and uh, as did other people who were free to, to carry on killing and doing who knows what else. I mean, who knows what killers today and even prominent officials are two degrees of separation from people on that distribution list, whether it be the Fox Island distribution list of, of Better Living Monthly or whether it be uh, the more underground distribution from the Cass Corridor and guys like Bad-Eyed Bob Moore. I mean, their, their names may have never been on paper, but who knows who today, now that the tide's washed over, would have, is where they are today or was able to do what they've since done because things got shut down so quickly after Bush's death. Either way, it, it cauterized, you know, a problem for a lot of people.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.